0: WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader, a national litigation firm advising companies in business disputes, internal investigations, and commercial matters. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. This is The Writer's Voice New Fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Saeed Fazade read his story, Audition, from the September 10, 2018 issue of the magazine. Sairafizadeh is the author of the story collection Brief Encounters with the Enemy, which was a finalist for the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for Debut Fiction in 2014. He won a 2010 Whiting Writer's Award for his memoir, When Skateboards Will Be Free. Now here's Saeed Sairafizadeh.
1: Audition the first time I smoked crack cocaine was the spring I worked construction for my father on his new subdivision in Moonlight Heights. My original plan had been to go to college, specifically for the arts, specifically for acting, where I'd envisioned strolling shoeless around campus with a notepad, jotting down details about the people I observed, so that I would later be able to replicate the human condition on screen with nuance and veracity. Instead. I was unmatriculated and 19, working six days a week, making $8 an hour, no more or less than what the other general laborers were being paid, and which is what passed, at least for my self-made father, as fairness. Occasionally, I would be cast in a community theater production of Neil Simon, or The Mystery of Edwin Drood, popular but uncomplicated fare, which we would rehearse for a month before performing in front of an audience of 15. "'You have to pay your dues,' the older actors would tell me, "'sensing, I suppose, my disappointment and impatience. "'How long is that going to take?' I'd ask them, "'as if they spoke from high atop the pinnacle of show business. "'In lieu of an answer, they offered a tautology. "'It takes as long as it takes,' they'd say. "'It was spring. It was rainy. It was the early 90s, "'meaning that Seinfeld was all the rage.' and so was Michael Jordan, and so was Crack Cocaine, the latter of which, at this point, I had no firsthand knowledge. As for Jerry Seinfeld and Michael Jordan, I knew them well. Each evening, having spent my day carrying 60-pound drywall across damp pavement and up banisterless staircases in one of the -the state-of-the-art family residences being pre-wired for the Internet, whatever that was, in a cul-de-sac eventually to be named Placid Village Circle, I would drive to my apartment and watch one or the other, Seinfeld or Jordan, since one or the other always happened to be on. They were famous, they were artists, they were exalted. I watched them and dreamed of my own fame and art and exalt. The more I dreamed, the more vivid the dream seemed to be, until it was no longer some faint dot situated on an improbable timeline, but rather my destiny— And all I needed to turn this destiny into reality was to make it out of my mid-sized city, not worth specifying, and move to L.A., where, of course, an actor needed to be if he was to have any chance at that thing called success. But from my perspective of a thousand miles, L.A. appeared immense, incensed, inscrutable, impenetrable. And every time I thought I had enough resolve to uproot myself and rent a U-Haul... I would quickly retreat into the soft, downy repetitiveness of my hometown with its low stakes, high livability, and steady paycheck from my father. The general laborers came and went that spring, working for a few weeks and then quitting without notice, eight dollars apparently not being enough to compensate even the most unskilled. No matter. For every man who quit, there were five more waiting in line to take his place, $8 apparently being enough to fill any vacancy. I was responsible for showing the new recruits around on their first day, which took about 20 minutes and got me out of carrying drywall. Here's the porta potty. Here's the foreman's office. Here's the paper to sign. They wanted to know what the job was like. They wanted to know if there were health benefits. They spoke quietly and conspiratorially, as if what they asked might be perceived as treasonous. They wanted to know if they might have the opportunity to learn some plumbing or carpentry. You'll have to talk to the boss about that, I'd tell them, but the answer was no. What they should have been asking me was if there was a union. No one knew that I was the boss's son. About once a week, my dad would show up in his powder-blue Mercedes and walk around inspecting the progress, displeased and concerned, finding everything urgent and subpar, showing neither love nor special dispensation toward me nor did I show any toward him. This seemed to come easily to the two of us. I was just another working man in wet overalls, and he was just another big shot in a three-piece suit and a safety vest. The roles we played were generic, superficial, and true. Later, he'd tell me, I'm doing this for you, not for me. What this was was not entirely clear. One day all of this will be yours, he'd say. This was three subdivisions in a ten-story office building downtown. This was the powder blue Mercedes. According to my father, he wanted me to learn the meaning of hard work up close and personal so that I would know what life was really like, but also because he wanted me to experience what he had gone through growing up on the outskirts of town with six siblings, odd jobs, and no help from the government. In short, I was living a version of his life albeit in reverse. From time to time I would be paired up with a guy named Duncan Diaguardi, who was my age but looked ten years older and who liked to order me around. Put this here, put that there. He enjoyed the power, while I enjoyed the cold comfort of knowing that I could burst his bubble by telling him who my dad was. But a good actor never breaks character. Clearly, I was a novice and not very good at hard work, as Duncan and my father had already surmised. I got winded fast. I got apathetic fast. I cut corners when I could. I waited for opportunities to go to the porta potty. I waited for opportunities to smoke cigarettes. The cigarettes got me winded faster. You need to get into shape, Duncan would tell me. Why don't you use your next paycheck to buy yourself a thigh master? This was a joke for him. He would walk around in short-sleeved shirts, impervious to the chill, a tattoo of a snake coiling around his bicep and crawling up toward his neck, en route to devour his face, a dramatic and striking image if ever there was one, doubly so against his pale skin, slick with drizzle. In the meantime, I slouched beneath drywall, imagining L.A. in the spring, waiting for lunchtime, quite proficient at not being the boss's son, and all the while reassuring myself that one day in the future I would be performing some version of this role with nuance and veracity, out of shape or not. What did you draw from to create the character, the critics would ask me. Why, from real life, I would say. When lunchtime arrived, I'd sit around with the other general laborers, 30 of us on upturned crates in an unfinished living room with a spring breeze blowing through the glassless windows, eating roast beef sandwiches and talking about money problems, home problems, work problems. My problems were not their problems, but I wished they were. Their problems were immediate, distinct, and resolvable. Mine were long-term, existential, and impossible. When I spoke, I tried to approximate the speech patterns of my co-workers, the softened consonants and the dropped articles, lest I reveal myself for the outsider that I was. No hard Ks, Xs, or Fs. The irony was that my father's specified plan of self-improvement for me dovetailed with my own. Experience, real life, up close and personal. The other general laborers knew one another from high school, or the neighborhood, or the previous work site, which had paid $10 an hour. They hoped that the subdivision wouldn't be finished until fall, maybe even winter. They didn't mind working forever. They were still counting on a chance to learn a trade but half of them would be gone in two weeks. As for me, I'd grown up in Timpany Hills, where none of these men would have had any reason to visit unless they'd come to do some roofing. I'd gone to the best schools and had the cushiest upbringing, including a pool in the backyard and weekend acting classes, where my dad would watch me perform on parents' night, misty and proud in the front row, his boorishness temporarily abated, supportive of his son's passion and talent, until he realized that his son was intending to pursue acting as something more than a hobby. Now all that history was inconsequential, pulsed inside the blender of collective toil. No one would have been able to tell me apart from any of the other general laborers I sat with on my lunch break, smoking cigarettes amid exposed crossbeams, just as no one would have been able to tell that I was the boss's son. To the latecomer entering the theater, I was indistinguishable from the whole. Just as no one would have been able to tell that I didn't really want to give Duncan Diaguardi a lift to his house after work, but his car had broken down. Yet one more item to be added to the list of immediate problems. What I wanted to say was, "Why don't you ride home on a thighmaster?" But what I actually said was, "Sure, jump in." I could hear the sprightliness in my voice, all false. It was Saturday. It was four o'clock. The foreman was letting us off early because the drywall hadn't been delivered on time. The new recruits wondered if they would still be paid for a full day. Theirs was an argument that made sense only on paper. "'Go enjoy the weather,' the foreman said, as if he were bestowing the good weather upon us. Indeed, the sun was high and there was no rain. When the breeze blew, it blew with promise. I should have been savoring the first official nice day of spring— Instead, I was driving an hour out of my way down Route 15. The traffic was slow going. We stopped and started. We stopped again. Duncan Diaguardi apologized for the traffic. Inside the car, he was surprisingly thoughtful and courteous. He had his seat belt on and his hands were folded in his lap. Setting is everything, my dear old acting teacher had once told me. And then we had done exercises to illustrate this concept. Forest. Beach. Prison cell. I don't mind traffic, I told Duncan. I was being courteous, too. I softened my consonants. I dropped my articles. Through the windshield, our mid sized city crawled past at a mid sized pace, mid sized highways with mid sized cars, mid sized citizens with their mid sized lives. We talked about work, and then we talked about ourselves. Away from the subdivision, it was clear that we had little in common. He told me that he'd been doing manual labor since he was 15, beginning with cleaning bricks at a demolition site on the north side of the city. I was taking weekend acting classes at 15. A nickel a brick, Duncan told me. You do the math. I wasn't sure what math there was to do. Duncan was the one who should have been taking acting classes, not me, receiving instruction on how to transform his supply of hard-earned material into that thing called art. He'd already lived twice the life that I'd lived, while having none of my advantages. He was what my father had been before my father hit it big. But Duncan DiAguardi was most likely never going to hit it big. His trajectory seemed already established. If I wasn't careful, my trajectory would soon be established. The tattoo of the snake heading up to Duncan's face was not an affect, but as apt a metaphor as any of what the past had been like for him, and what the future held. He needed no affect. I was the one who needed an affect. Don't ever get a tattoo, my acting teacher had told me. A performer must always remain a blank slate. So here I was, playing the role of general laborer with flawless skin and stuck in traffic. It was 4.30. If I was lucky, I'd be home by 6. Maybe I would take a nap, assuage my fatigue and apathy, wake up fresh and do something productive like read a script and enlighten myself. Sometimes I would lie in the bathtub and read aloud from my stack of current and classic screenplays, playing every single character—men, women, and children. Even the stage directions were a character. Fade in. Interior. Bathtub. Night. Fade out. Everything was deserving of voice. Meanwhile, Duncan Diaguardi and I lit cigarettes, one after the other, inhaling first- and second hand smoke. We fiddled with the radio— Tupac came on. Tupac was all the rage. We nodded our heads to Tupac. Apropos of Tupac, I told Duncan about how I was planning to move to L.A. I said it casually, as if this plan were already in the works, rather than a doubtful dot on an undrawn timeline. And I was unexpectedly filled with a brief but heartening sense that, merely by my vocalizing that something would happen, something would actually happen, as per pop psychology. Duncan told me that he had lived in L.A., between starting high school and dropping out of high school. What else had Duncan done by the age of 19? Where else had Duncan lived? He was so far ahead of me in the category of life that I would have been unable to catch up even if I began living now. What was L.A. like, I asked him. I could hear my counterfeit casualness being usurped by genuine yearning. It was magical, Duncan said. He got quiet. He contributed no follow-up details. He stared out the windshield. See this traffic, he said. I saw this traffic. This is in L.A. traffic, he said. I pictured L.A. traffic on a Saturday at 4.30. Sun high, never rain, bumper to bumper, all of it magical. Suddenly, I was telling Duncan DiAguardi about my innermost desires, speaking confessionally spilling my guts, spelling out exactly how I was going to become an actor, how I was going to rent a U-Haul, not give the boss any notice, fuck the boss, drive a thousand miles in a day, arrive in L.A., find an agent, find a place to live, start auditioning for film and television, maybe even Seinfeld. Keep an eye out for me on Seinfeld, I said. If you say it, it will happen. Somewhere along the way I had stopped dropping articles and softening consonants, because it was too difficult a ruse to maintain while also trying to be authentic. I told Duncan about having performed in The Mystery of Edwin Drood, twice, at the rec center, one fall and the following fall. I'd had only a small part, but I'd got some laughs. I didn't tell him that there'd been 15 people in the audience. Perhaps he'd heard of the production. There had been a four-star review in the Tribune. No, he hadn't heard of it. You can do better than that bullshit, he said. It was 5 o'clock. We were moving fast now. The traffic was gone. So were my cigarettes. We were inspiring each other with our uplifting stories of promise and potential. Duncan was telling me about his own plans for the future, which mainly involved having realized that he'd wasted the previous year and the year before that. He was determined to make up for it. He knew precisely what needed to be done. He spoke generally. In response, I spoke generally, too, providing platitudes were applicable. You can do whatever you set your mind to, I said. It's mind over matter, he said. That's right, I said. That's right, he said. We were in agreement, and yet I had the peculiar feeling that we were referring to different things. He was telling me where to turn. Turn here, turn there, left, right, right. I was entering territory with which I was unfamiliar because I'd grown up cushy. We drove beneath an overpass that led into a down-and-out neighborhood of weather-beaten, two-story, red-brick homes—a hundred of them in a row, every one identical, just as the houses in my father's subdivision were identical, but at the other end of the economic spectrum. This was a neighborhood of odd jobs and no help, where people shopped for dinner at the convenience store. I trust them as far as I can throw them, Duncan said, referring to I know not what— This was outsized struggle in a mid-sized city. Turn, turn, turn. The Spice Girls came on. The Spice Girls were all the rage. Apropos of the Spice Girls, Duncan was asking me if I wanted to party tonight. He was asking as if the thought had just occurred to him. It was Saturday, after all. It was 5.30. It would be a shame to let these windfall spring hours go to waste. It would be a shame to go home, as I always did, lie in the bathtub— have another night of living life through the soggy pages of screenplays, getting closer to 20 years old, my timeline unraveling like a ball of yarn. I somehow knew that the word party in this context meant one thing, getting high. What I really wanted was to stop at a convenience store and get more cigarettes. Don't waste your money, Duncan said. He could buy me more cigarettes, no problem. He pointed to one of the identical buildings. If I gave him $10, he could get me a carton of cigarettes at half price. If I chipped in $30, he could get the two of us cigarettes plus. Do you want cigarettes plus? Duncan asked. Do you want to party? He was speaking now entirely in the language of euphemisms, and I was fluent. Yes, I said, I want to party. It was six o'clock, and we were in the basement of Duncan Diaguardi's house, Or, more to the point, we were in the basement of his mother's house, where he was staying until his security deposit cleared. Banks, he said generally. His mother wasn't home, but she kept a nice house, much nicer on the inside than it appeared on the outside, with hardwood floors and crown molding. And I thought about how these were the kinds of details that would have eluded a person who had merely driven through the neighborhood without bothering to stop, like the passenger on a cruise ship who thinks he knows the island from the port. Duncan's basement was more bedroom than basement, with Mom's touches, sheets tucked in, cozy and comfortable, except for a boiler in the corner that was making clicking sounds. Stacked up in a pile were some carpentry manuals for beginners, yellow books with hammers on the covers. I dabble with those sometimes, he said. Then he added, but they won't give a guy like me a chance. I wasn't sure if whatever you set your mind to would apply in this instance. On his dresser was a Magnavox TV, 25-inch with a built-in VCR, presumably left on all day, tuned to ESPN, where the announcers were ooing and eyeing over who else, Michael Jordan, who was doing what else, winning. He glided down the court, He floated through the air. He elbowed his defender in the chest. Everything he did had style, even his mistakes. He was the perfect blend of beauty and power, of grace and aggression. No one would have dared tell Michael Jordan it takes as long as it takes. My carton of cigarettes was in my lap, cradled lovingly, half price, as promised, already torn open by me, Cigarette smoke going straight up into my face. And in Duncan's palm was the adventure I had come here for. Two small white cubes, yellowish really, crumbs really, bought at full price. This is what you get for $20 a piece, he said. You do the math. Had I been the late comer to this play, I would have thought that these two small cubes had been chipped off the edge of some drywall. So insignificant did they look. If Duncan had accidentally dropped them on the floor, they would have been lost forever in the grain of the hardwood. But Duncan, handling them with such care and attention, as if he were a doctor operating over a nightstand, demonstrating speed and precision, using one of Mom's table knives to gently break the two white chips into even smaller white chips, would never let them drop on the floor. This was the stuff of theater, basement theater, The six o'clock show and I had a front row seat to the action from which I was able to watch what happens when the actor does not have the right props with him because this actor is not a pro and not intending on becoming a pro what Duncan was though was ingenious withdrawing a roll of aluminum foil from beneath his bed no doubt procured from mom's cupboard and a box of chore boy also from beneath his bed with little chore boy wearing a backward baseball cap a big grin on his face, because life is nothing if not delightful, especially when one is cleaning. He could have been a character from a fairy tale, chore boy, innocent and archetypal, his stumpy arm beckoning the consumer toward some enchanted land. Soon, a perfect aluminum foil pipe emerged from Duncan Diaguardi, glinting silver in the Magnavox light, reminding me of the way some family restaurants will wrap your leftovers in aluminum foil in the shape of a swan. But into this particular swan's mouth disappeared a piece of the chore boy, followed by one small chip off the drywall. And then Duncan Diaguardi ran his lighter back and forth, orange flame on silver neck, and from the swan's tail he sucked ever so gently, cheeks pulling, pulling, until, like magic, he tilted his head back and out of his mouth emerged a perfect puff of white smoke. He considered for a moment... Eyes closed, then eyes opened, gauging, I suppose, the ratio of crack cocaine to baking powder. And then he offered an appraisal. Not bad, he said. He looked at me. Was it my turn now? No, not yet my turn. First, we must watch Michael Jordan, because the aluminum foil pipe needed time to cool down, a necessary and dramatic interlude the basement boiler ticking off the minutes. It was almost the end of the basketball game, and beads of sweat dripped elegantly down Jordan's shaved head as he huddled with coaches and teammates, half listening to advice that had long ago ceased applying to him. He showed no signs of trepidation or anxiety about the fate of the game. He already knew the fate of the game. As for the advice that Duncan DiAguardi was now offering me, I listened carefully. This is how you hold the pipe. This is how you inhale the smoke. This isn't a cigarette, he said. You don't suck it into your lungs. He was patient, the way a good coach should be. Then he clicked the lighter, and I was pulling as he had pulled. Not too hard, not too soft, just right. I had expected the foil on my lips to taste like something, but it tasted like nothing. I had expected the smoke to smell like something, but it smelled like nothing. I had expected the high to alter me in some profound and mystifying way, but the effect was underwhelming and anticlimactic. Mostly, I felt clear-eyed and level-headed, disappointingly so. Not bad, I said anyway. The only thing that was unexpected was the sudden sense of fondness that I had for Duncan Diaguardi good coach that he was, and, dare I say, good friend. Sure, I barely knew him. Sure, we had had different upbringings. But we had shared something on that ride down Route 15, and we were sharing something now within his home, which he had welcomed me into. And in this way, yes, I could consider him a friend. The passenger who had remained only in the port, browsing the trinket shops, delighting in duty-free, would never have known this subtle but essential detail. Just as he would never have known that there was indeed a distinct smell hovering in the room, of the chore boy being cooked alive, not dissimilar to the odor when the plumbers had come through the subdivision, soldering the water lines, the new recruits watching them with envy and admiration. That spring, my dear old acting teacher came to my rescue by way of a phone call, out of the blue, asking if I might be able to audition for a play that he was directing at the Apple Tree Theater. So wonderful to hear your voice again, he said. He said that he had always remembered me fondly from those Sunday classes years earlier. Intro to Acting 1, followed by Intro to Acting 2, where he would instruct a dozen teenagers in the world of make-believe. We played games. We played inanimate objects. We played adults. There are rules even for make-believe, he would tell us. Everything he said had the ring of truth and revelation. He had the empathy and kindness of the elderly. If there had been an intro three and four, I would have taken those two all the way up to sea. I was always forlorn when my dad arrived to pick me up in his powder blue Mercedes. The engine kept running. On a few occasions, my teacher had taken him aside and told him that his son had a future in theater. That's good to know, my father had said but the future he was envisioning was real estate. Now my teacher was calling to say that he had never forgotten me, that I had made a strong impression on him even at the age of 15, and that he thought I would be perfect for the role he had in mind. The way he spoke made it sound as if he had already come to a decision, and reading for the role was only a technicality. Still, I knew enough to know that nothing was ever guaranteed, that auditioning was only one step toward being cast— that a play was only one step toward a movie, and a movie was only one step toward fame. But that my teacher had sought me out after all these years was a sign that I was truly talented, that the hope I had been harboring was not false, and that I was living a life where the unexpected could indeed occur. When I showed up for the audition a week later, I was disheartened to see that it was far from a foregone conclusion." I was one of twenty young men who had apparently all been students of my acting teacher, and all of whom he had apparently remembered fondly. We were perfect replicas of one another, dressed in khakis, hair blow-dried, walking around doing the same vocal warm-ups that we had been taught. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, no softened consonants here. In our hands we held headshots of our giant faces, lit to make us appear older, wiser, and better-looking than we actually were, and on the back were our resumes, numbering ten or fewer credentials, twice for the mystery of Edwin Drood. In thirty years, the list of credentials would be longer, and our headshots would be younger. Things were running behind. The auditions were supposed to have started at ten o'clock, first come, first served, but it was noon, and they'd made it only through twelve hopefuls. I was number 19 on the list. I was anxious. I was hungry. I was taking time off from work. A dentist's appointment, I'd told the foreman. Do that on your own time, he'd said. Instead of eating food, I smoked cigarettes, standing in the doorway, six feet from a sign that said no smoking, exhaling out into the spring air, alongside my fellow actors who looked like me. We bantered, we joked, we lit one another's cigarettes, We pretended we were not consumed with insecurity and competitiveness. To help pass the time, we talked about classical and postmodern theater. If I had gone to college, I might have known what I was talking about. The walls around us were adorned with posters of plays past, announcing four-week runs to nowhere. Every so often, the big brown door of the theater, with its single round pane of glass, something like a porthole, would swing open— offloading the previous aspirant, a carbon copy of myself, whose face conveyed, in equal parts, relief, defeat, and premature delusions of being cast. When it was finally my turn, I was surprised to see that my acting teacher, whom I had remembered at best as middle-aged and at most as old, was probably only in his early thirties. He had seemed tall back then, too, but now he was short and I was tall He was standing in the middle of a row of seats, with stacks of scripts beside him. And when I handed him my headshot, he looked at me without the faintest recognition. But then, when it suddenly became clear to him who I was, and how much I'd changed in the intervening years, he stepped forward and embraced me. I felt his empathy and kindness draped around my shoulders, expressed without reservation. And if the embrace had continued much longer, I might have cried." He wanted to know how I'd been and what I'd been doing, but since the auditions were running behind, there was no time to catch up. What was being decided here and now was whether I would be cast in a central role as a character who would be on stage for all three acts but had zero lines. I could not tell if this was a step backward or forward for my career. If I had to pick one, I would have picked backward. According to my teacher, it was forward. He holds the play together, he said. To this end, he needed to see how I moved through space, since moving through space would be the only thing I would be doing. So I took my place on stage, apprehensive beneath a single blinding spotlight, and waited for his direction, which was, simply, show me the color red. This was not something I had been anticipating. I had been anticipating, for example being asked to mime pouring a glass of water, something I remember being quite good at. Without warning, we had entered the realm of symbolism and abstraction. We had entered game-playing and fun. But all I could think of was the tremendous predicament of being asked to embody a concept. Was a color even a concept? If I had been 15 still, I would have done what he asked happily, without thinking twice. I would have done every color. Here's fuchsia. Here's cadmium yellow. There would have been joy in exploration. Now my brain felt calcified and literal, the effects of aging. I could only think of making a semi-bold choice, like lying on my back and moving interpretively. But lying on my back would obscure me from my teacher's vision. If the audience can't see you, he would sometimes say, then who are you doing this for? I lay down anyway, the hard stage pressing against me, dust getting all over my khakis. The foreman would say to me later, "'You got dirty from going to the dentist?' For lack of any other idea, I channeled the character of the foreman, and then I channeled the drywall, which was not a character, and I thought about smoking a cigarette, because in my world of make-believe, the color red smokes cigarettes, which was what I did, lying on my back, eyes closed, moving conceptually, this way and that, blowing smoke into the yellow spotlight of blindness.' And when I stood up and dusted myself off, I had, most wondrously, been given the role. The second time I smoked crack cocaine was the spring I worked construction for my father on his new subdivision in Moonlight Heights. By this point, the electricians had finished pre-wiring for the Internet, whatever that was. The floors had been poured, the windows had been installed, and the general laborers had come and gone, eight dollars an hour not being enough. I would show the new recruits around, bathroom, foreman, paper to sign, and then I would go carry drywall in the sunshine. I was aware that I had been waiting for Duncan Diaguardi to invite me to party again, but no invitation had been forthcoming, and to broach it myself seemed as though it would traverse an essential but unstated boundary. This time it was a Tuesday evening, after our shift, around six o'clock. Duncan's car had broken down again. Sure, I said. Jump in. I could hear the sprightliness in my voice, now authentic. The traffic was just as bad as ever, and we crawled forward with our windows rolled down, the spring breeze blowing in, the cigarette smoke blowing out, dusk all around us. I'm sorry about the traffic, Duncan said, as he had said before. I don't mind, I said. We talked about the subdivision for a while, and then we were quiet, mulling over I know not what. And then I broke the silence with the fantastic news that I'd been cast in a play, and that the way I saw things it was only a matter of time before I would be renting the U-Haul and making my move. Duncan was happy for me. He shook my hand. He slapped me on the back. Whatever you set your mind to, he said, I told him that I'd get him a free ticket for opening night. He told me, I'll be able to tell people I knew you when. I was not used to such expansiveness. I could feel myself blushing. Not many lines, I told him. Obviously, the truth was that there were no lines. But I thought it was important to at least try to keep things in some perspective. Humility first. Fame second. Lines don't matter, Duncan said. Success was what mattered and success called for celebration. Aw, I said, I sure appreciate that, but it was a work night after all. No, it wasn't. It wasn't even seven o'clock. It would be a shame to let such good news go to waste. Let's celebrate, Duncan Diaguardi said. I knew that, in this context, celebrate was another word for party, which was, of course, itself another word. The traffic was gone and I was driving fast. If I had had an ability to observe myself, I might have questioned why I needed to get where I was going in such a hurry. Under the overpass, I went, 15 miles above the speed limit. Turn, turn, turn. Duncan Diaguardi didn't need to tell me where to turn. He wanted to know if I had $40 to chip in. For $40, I'd have to stop at the ATM. The ATM was in the convenience store where people were shopping for dinner. At the ATM, I noted with satisfaction that my savings were considerable. $8 an hour adds up. His mother was home when we got there. Meet my friend, Duncan Diaguardi said. The word friend was not a euphemism. His mother was sitting in the living room watching Seinfeld. She said, You're welcome here anytime. She was being warm, she was being hospitable, she was laughing at what was happening on TV. And a few moments later, Duncan and I were in the basement, also laughing at what was happening on TV. Jerry was saying something logical, and George was frustrated, and Elaine was rolling her eyes, and here came Kramer bursting through the front door. When Duncan opened his hand, I imagined for a moment that, instead of the insignificant chips off the drywall, he was holding a palm full of giant chunks the size of golf balls, one pound each. You do the math, Duncan said. Beneath his bed was the chore boy, but its symbolism had gone the way of the euphemism. Now when we smoked, we used, of all things, a broken car antenna, which, according to Duncan, he had found lying on the sidewalk. This was a neighborhood where car antennas lay on the sidewalk. The smoke came out of Duncan's mouth in the same white puff that lingered in the air of the basement theater not bad, he said again. And when it was my turn, I also said, not bad, but I meant it this time. I was the passenger on the cruise ship who had become acquainted with the island. The same warm feeling of friendship for Duncan engulfed me, followed by an unexpected but welcome sense of optimism concerning my prospects. Extraordinarily promising they were, weren't they, beginning with those three acts I was going to have on stage and heading toward a career. It was 8 o'clock. Another episode of Seinfeld was just getting underway. The back-to-back shows courtesy of NBC. The interweaving storylines being established in that first minute. Someone determined. Someone displeased. The fatal flaw introduced, followed 30 minutes later by the abrupt resolution. And all of it funny. Until all of it suddenly was not funny. Suddenly I was in possession of that thing called clarity. I was watching the most vapid show in the history of television. It had always been vapid, and we, the viewers, had always been duped. I could see straight through it now, solipsistic, narcissistic, false reality, easy tropes, barely amusing. The clarity that I thought I'd had moments earlier had not been clarity at all, but rather its opposite, delusion which was now being usurped by an all-encompassing awareness, horrible and heavy, through which I understood at once that I was not talented, had never been talented, that my life as a general laborer was proof of this lack of talent, and that being cast in a role with zero lines was not a step toward fame, but a step into obscurity in a mid-sized city. Who but a fool agrees to move through space for three acts without saying a word? The car antenna was coming back my way. It was nine o'clock. I had entered a strange dimension of time. It was progressing both slowly and quickly, as marked by the ticking of that basement boiler. Nine was early for night. It would be night for many more hours to come. I was nineteen. Nineteen was young. I would be young for many more years to come. What exactly had I been so troubled by a few minutes before? Light and airy clarity descended upon me. Ah, this was clarity, and the other, delusion. I had reversed things, silly, overstated them, compounded them, turned delight into cynicism. I was going to be on stage for three acts, moving through space, another credential to have on my resume when I arrived in L.A. It was ten o'clock. Was ten o'clock early for night? Was night moving slowly or fast? Was Jerry funny or stupid? We were driving back to the ATM now. I knew I was traversing some essential but unstated boundary, but I traversed it anyway. I wondered if Duncan DiAguardi had ever had a broken-down car, or if he had smoked the car, its antenna being the last piece remaining. I wondered if he'd smoked L.A. I wondered if he'd one day smoke his Magnavox TV. This is the last time I'm doing this, I said to myself, even as I knew that saying so implied its inverse. At the ATM, I took out another $40. I noted my balance. My savings account was still large. It was midnight. Midnight was still young.
0: That was Saeed Syrafazade reading his story, Audition. This is his fifth story in the magazine. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Tessa Hadley reads New York Girl by John Updike. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.